Lord, we thank you so much uh, for the gift of music. We thank you for all the ways that music speaks to our hearts, speaks to our souls, all the ways that music, uh, gl music glorifies your holy name. So Lord, we, uh, we thank you for that gift, and we thank you for those here uh, each Sunday uh, who make it happen. And we thank you for those in churches around the globe, really, who lead and, and lead us in worship. And so we're grateful for that gift. We're also very grateful, of course, Lord, for your holy word. And as we come to it today, we ask that you would set aside this time, that you'd make this time holy and pleasing unto you, uh, that uh, you would be praised in these moments, that you would be glorified, uh, that your will would be done in our lives. We ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. We are uh, slowly working our way uh, through John, and it has been uh, slow. We're, we're going to continue in John until uh, probably Advent, and then at the Advent season, we'll, we'll do something a little different for those uh, four weeks or so, and then we'll get back in uh, to the Gospel of John. But um, I've long wanted to kind of preach through the entire Gospel, have preached through different parts of it. Uh, throughout my calling to ministry, but somehow have never preached uh, kind of beginning to end in the gospel uh, of John. So uh, I'm enjoying that. I hope you're getting a blessing out of it uh, as well as we, as we spend that time together. So John chapter 3, we're going to read verses 22 uh, to 30 uh, today, and then next week we'll probably move on uh, to John chapter 4. But um, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Thanks be to God for his holy word. I have a rather uh, odd fact for you this morning. The U.S. standard distance between train rails, known as the standard railroad gauge, is four feet eight and a half inches, or 1,435 millimeters. Now, why such an odd number? Eight, four feet, eight and a half inches. Well, because that's the way train tracks were built in England. And American railroads were built by British expatriates. So why did the English adopt that distance? Well, that's because the people who built the tramways used that distance. 
And the tramway manufacturers used the same standards and the same tools used for building wagons. And wagon wheels were set on a distance of four feet, eight and a half inches. So why were the wagons built to that scale? Well, it was in order to match the old wheel ruts in the roads in England. So who built the rutted roads? Well, the first roads in Europe were built by Rome for the benefit of their legions. The ruts were first made by Roman war chariots. As it turns out, four feet, eight and a half inches was the width the chariot needed to accommodate the backsides of war horses. That's where it came from. The story illustrates the truth, I believe, that change is not easy. And sometimes we just keep doing it the way we've always done it, even though there's no real logical reason to do it that way. Sometimes there was originally a logical reason to accommodate the width of a war horse's backside. But years later, that reason no longer exists. But somehow we keep doing it that same way. No one sees fit to change that standard. Obviously, now it's gone too far. It would be too difficult probably to change all the railways in America. But change of any kind is difficult. Uh, and life transitions can be the most difficult. Uh, for some of you uh, high school students who are here today, for once it was a big deal for you guys to go from the eighth, to enter the eighth grade and go to the high school, right? It was a big deal. That was a, a rite of passage. It was a nervous moment. Now it's no big deal. A transitioning to driving a car for some of you, while exciting, was also a bit nerve-wracking for you and for your parents. College or entering the workforce or entering the military, that, there's an, other transitions that are exciting, uh, but they're challenging for all of us. All life transitions bring joys and they bring challenges. For example, moving from being single to being married. Changing from just being the two of you to having children and then adding additional children. All those transitions bring great joys but challenges as well. There's the whole joy and the heartache that some of us have gone through recently of, of our children leaving the nest and all that that means. Changing jobs, retiring, moving, all of that, are they're challenging and joy-filled life transitions. Some transitions bring joys. Some bring challenges. Some bring heartache. And our text today marks a major transition in the life of John the Baptist. It's a transition from the emphasis on John and his ministry to the emphasis now moving to Jesus. And it symbolizes the transition from the old covenant to the new. John the Baptist was the last prophet of the old covenant. And Jesus came as a mediator of the new covenant. His sacrificial death established the new covenant. The author of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31 and says in Hebrews 8.8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In this new covenant, verse 10, the Lord declares he will put the laws on their minds and write them on their hearts. And then the author of Hebrews concludes verse 13 in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, the new covenant in Jesus is not merely a revision of the old covenant. Rather, it is something brand new. It is something completely different. It's the only covenant ultimately that will bring us salvation. When the author of Hebrews spoke of a new covenant, he used the word kainos, which in Greek it means new as in new in kind. It's totally new. And we see in our text today that John understood this. John understood that there was a new covenant. John understood there was a transition taking place. But the others struggled with it. John's disciples, for example, asked a lot of questions. They were really struggling with what they saw happening. Let's turn to our text, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. The phrase remain there is a phrase that means he spent a significant amount of time with them there. It means to remain sometime with someone or in a particular place. So Jesus was spending a lot of time with his disciples, and he was baptizing, though John chapter 4 verse 2 tells us that Jesus wasn't baptizing, his disciples were actually baptizing. But one can only imagine that during this time, Jesus was spending a lot of time training his disciples. He was getting them ready for the ministry that was yet to come. At the same time, verses 23 and 24 tell us that John the Baptist was continuing his ministry of baptizing and preparing the people for the Messiah. <clears throat> you see, even as Jesus' ministry was gaining momentum, people were still going to John to repent and be baptized. But what happens next reveals that a transition was taking place. Verse 25 tells us that some sort of discussion, probably a dispute, arose between some of John's disciples and an unnamed Jew over purification. We're not told what the dispute was all about. It probably had something to do with the cleansing waters of baptism. And beyond that, I won't speculate. But somehow that precipitated the real issue for John's disciples, verse 26. And they came to John and they said, Rabbi, he was who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John and his disciples and Jesus and his disciples had been ministering side by side for some time now. And what John's disciples had started noticing is that many of John's followers were now going over to Jesus' camp. We, we even saw back in chapter 1 that, that one of John's disciples left, and at least one, and became one of Je Jesus' disciples. So John's remaining disciples seemed concerned that, that 
their leader's popularity is waning. John's disciples seem to see Jesus and his disciples as competitors, so much so that notice they won't even name Jesus. They say, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan. There's a competition going on in their minds. Their master was losing popularity while Jesus was gaining in popularity. But John wasn't concerned. His ministry all along had been to prepare the way for Jesus. His calling all along had been to soften hearts so that people would repent and be ready and trust in their Messiah, Jesus. So John says, verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John is humbly saying that God had given him the role of preparing the way. And if God in that moment chose to change that role or to take that role away from him, then so be it. John is affirming that everything, including ministry, is a gift from God. It's not an entitlement. It's a gift. We need to embrace, beloved, that humility, especially ministers. For the temptation is always out there for us to make it our ministry. Never has been, never will be. It's God's ministry. John continues, verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Look, John said all along, we saw this early on, he said, I'm not the Christ. I'm just the one preparing the way for Jesus. I'm the forerunner of the Messiah. Yes, I have an important role, but, but mine's not the most important. I'm, I'm preparing you for the Messiah to come. John is saying that what's happening now is a fulfillment of my calling. I'm supposed to be sliding into the background. Here's a lesson for all of us. The measure of success for Stuart Presbyterian Church or for any ministry is not how many people follow the ministry or how many people follow the pastor, but how many people follow Jesus through that ministry. That's the measure of success. John took a posture, beloved, that all of us should take. He said, look, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. And that phrase meant he was a good friend. Probably in our day, he was the equivalent of the best man at the wedding. And in those days, he would have had great responsibilities. Uh, he was even the one responsible for bringing the bride to the bridegroom. But once that task was completed, he slid out of the way. And he let all the focus go upon the bridegroom. 
The friend then at that point, as, as John says, would rejoice greatly at the bridegroom. His joy was complete because he had fulfilled his calling. He had brought the bride to the bridegroom. You see, John's joy was full because the crowds were leaving him and they were going to the bridegroom Jesus as they should. <clears throat> Church, that's our calling. To always be pointing people to the bridegroom, to Jesus. Our calling is to understand that this ministry of ours is a gift and it's a gift for only a season. We only have one life to give. We only have one season. And it's not about us. It's not about us. It is all about Jesus. As John said next, verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. That's one of the most humble statements ever recorded in Scripture. <clears throat> Leon Morris in his commentary has written, it's not particularly easy in this world to gather followers for a serious purpose. But when they are gathered, it is infinitely harder to detach them and firmly insist that they go after another. But that's exactly what John did. He emphatically insisted he must increase I must decrease. Now, John was speaking of his fading role as the forerunner and Jesus increasing uh, in his ministry and revelation as the Messiah. John, better than most, understood that a tr transition was taking place as he, the last prophet of the old covenant, faded into the background. And Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, moved to the forefront. <clears throat> but I think there's a practical application for you and for me. He, Jesus, must increase and we must decrease. You, you know, that notion has been turned into t-shirts and bumper stickers with the words and symbol. I think we have it up here. He, greater than sign, I he greater than I. It's a nice bumper sticker. Makes a great coffee mug. But what does it mean? How does Jesus increase in our lives? <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is going away. It, it doesn't mean that our personality is gone. It, it doesn't mean that our personality is just swallowed up. And we totally ignore self. But it does mean that we strive to be more Christ-like. And that our focus is less on self and more on Christ. It means letting Jesus have greater possession of our minds and our hearts and our wills. It means our joy is complete when we see Jesus being glorified through our lives and our witness. It also means that when Jesus is being glorified through someone else's life, our joy is also complete. We celebrate. We're not jealous. It's not a competition. We should all strive to work together so that people are brought to the bridegroom 
Jesus. You see, it's not about whether I bring them or whether you bring them or whether maybe the ministry down the road brings them. It's all about whether they're brought to Jesus and they come to know Him as Lord and Savior and Jesus is glorified. So how does Jesus increase in our lives? How do we do that? Well, first, we've got to know Jesus. We've got to know the person who we say needs to increase in our lives. And the best way I know to know Jesus is through the pages of Scripture. If you want to become more like Jesus, then I suggest you read through the Gospels over and over and over again. Note his character. Note how he handles situations. Model his humility. Begin to pattern your life more and more after Christ. In fact, with that in mind, that's why I've given you a handout this morning that's just an outline if you want to do it, to read through all four Gospels between now and Christmas. You'll finish on December 23rd. I just urge you to do that, to, to mold your life after the character of Christ. And when you finish, do it, read it again. Uh, keep studying Christ in those Gospels. I think allowing Jesus to become greater in our lives is also going to require prayer. When we pray, it's acknowledging that, that we're not the be-all, end-all. It's saying, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. It's saying, Jesus, increase in my life. Help, help me walk with you more fully. Help me walk with you in a way that I might bring you glory. And then there are just practical things you and I can do to make Jesus increase. We can practice forgiving as He forgives. We can practice seeking after love as He loves. We can practice serving as He serves. We can practice trying to be humble as Jesus is humble. Church, we've only got one life to give. That's all we have. One life to give. One life to glorify Jesus. One life to bear witness to His amazing grace. Like John, I pray that we will understand our purpose that you and I might be friends of the bridegroom. That we might bring people to the bridegroom. And then we might step out of the way so that Jesus receives all the glory and the honor and the praise. He must increase and we must decrease. Let's pray together. Lord, we we get so wrapped up in ourselves. We we get so focused on self and all that we think is important, all that we want and all of our desires, our will. We lose sight that you must increase. 
and we must decrease. We ask that you would grant us humble spirits, Lord. If we're going to brag, if we're going to be show-offs as, a, as we said with the children, well, let's show off for Jesus. Let's boast about you. Give us strength to, to boast of you. To do so in a way, again, that doesn't come across as a, as a bragger, but as one who humbly says it's all about Jesus. Give us a hunger, Lord, to know you through the pages of the Gospels and throughout Scripture. Give us a hunger to meet you in prayer so that you might increase in our lives. And Lord, help us forgive as you forgave and as you forgive us still. Help us love as you love. Serve as you serve. Humble like you are humble. Oh Lord, we pray. Even though it might be a bit of a scary prayer to pray, Lord. But sometimes we're too fond of self. And Lord, you want us to be fond of ourselves. You want us to love ourselves as we love our neighbors. You want us to have blessings in life. You want us to do well in life. But you want us to do so in such a way that brings you all the glory. So help us incre you increase while we decrease. To you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be all glory, praise, and honor today and forevermore. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you today and forevermore. Amen.